horror, the oldest form of storytelling. From its humble roots around the campfire to its rise as one of the most evocative genres of film, horror has always served as a massive mirror to the collective fears and anxieties of our cultures. After all, what is Little Red Riding Hood if not a slasher flick? The question is, as we move further into this next decade, what will we see in that mirror next? Will it be a reflection of our political or climate anxieties? Will there be another zombie craze of the 2000s? Today, we try to answer that question on The Return of the Movie. And hello and welcome everyone back to The Return of the Movie. I am your host for today, Ben, and with me I have my co-host, yes, I am pointing towards the right side of the screen, Matt, who is in our new and improved call-in system. Say hello, Matt. Hello, Matt. In the booth today, we have a face that you all should be somewhat familiar with, Abraham. Hi. Abraham, I guess just partake in the conversation from the booth. Yep, I'm just uh, I'm just kind of here now. <laughs> okay, so uh, today we are having a fun change. Um, so I'm now looking at the bottom cre- uh, at the bottom section. Uh, we're not doing the five next big horror genres. We're doing the three because after doing some more research, we quickly realized uh, that there's really only going to be probably three next major shifts within the landscape of horror. As for the rest of this, though, uh, I guess it's probably a good idea to explain why there would be paradigm shifts within horror. And what we even mean by that. You know just as well as I that horror is what represents our fears as a society based off of what's popular when and where. So I guess to kind of go over this, we came up with a quick list of it where things have been, some of the genres, and a couple very interesting pieces of media to reference, um, starting with the 90s. So the 90s was a kind of a weird intersection for horror. We have the intersection of the ending of the slasher craze, or the first slasher craze. So I can name off probably about a dozen different franchises that had a bajillion sequels in the 90s, all to whom had diminishing box office and critical returns. Um, but you also kind of had the intersection of, like, with the release of Scream, a more meta view of horror, more meta commentary on horror. So it was postmodern, I guess, would be the word for it. Um, you, so that was one of the big shifts in the 90s. You also had the early origins of the found footage craze. There were movies before Blair Witch, but Blair Witch was the movie that kicked it off. And then it, when we start getting into the 2000s, we start seeing found footage really taking off within that time. We also see sort of this meta horror craze, which is actually mostly screen, but it's usually a commentary on what's happening within the industry at the time. And at the time, there was a lot of focus on celebrities as a whole, and celebrity cultures really started taking off even more and more in the early 2000s when we started having the tabloid craze. And then also in the 2000s, we started seeing the zombie really, really go hard as one of our main genres. So we can actually thank Zack Snyder for that with his remake of Dawn of the Dead, but it it goes farther than that. You have like, I mean, The Walking Dead, which... As of 2022, still going. There is one other genre for that for that decade I do kind of want to give a shout out to is the remake of the Japanese uh, ghost film, basically. So with like the grudge, the ring. So you're right. Um, so you have the ring and the ring two, uh, the grudge, all of which were some of the highest grossing films of their respective years. You also have something like the others, which again, not a Japanese remake, but still kind of ghost film. Um, but that was like 2000 to about 2008, I'd say. Yeah, and then that starts really cresting us into the 2010s, uh, which, honestly, we would all be remiss if we did not say that the number one horror genre then was the vampires. The revisiting of that, and we have only Twilight to thank for that. I don't like that I'm bringing up Twilight two podcasts in a row. I would just like to say that you guys need to put respect on Twilight's name. <laughs> it is a classic. No, 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 hold on. No, no, hold on. I'm going to get full full frame for this. It's a classic. Nobody can touch it. <laughs> All right, back I to mean, you. I mean, I, I will say Twilight did really important things for um, the media landscape as a whole. 
whether they were good or not is uh, a, a different question, but I think that's I, I think that's fine. I also think that the we on the flip side of that, we had a serious rise in religious horror, and I'm talking about The Conjuring, The Nun, and frankly, in a weird combination of both, we also had towards the latter half of the 2010s, um, Midnight Mass really taking a hold. So the thing with the Conjuring films, um, I was looking at the highest grossing horror films for each year, and for pretty much every year in the past decade, a Conjuring film has been the highest grossing horror film. So Annabelle Creation, um, Annabelle Comes Home, Conjuring 2, uh, Annabelle, The Conjuring, it's they all kind of were leading the box office for, and I, and I don't want to make like a bandwagon argument and say that the box office is the only metric we should be judging by, but it is a pretty good indicator of current trends. The funny thing with The Conjuring is that it was basically just the Amityville horror redone. Um, yep. And made, and one of the things with a lot of these religious horrors, and you'll see this with like the exorcism of Emily Rose back in 05, uh, they're all based on a true story. They're not. So I guess this is a good time to introduce our thesis for this episode. Without further ado, I'm going to say number three on our next big genres in horror. I'm going to have to say it's folk horror for a couple of reasons. I don't know. I'd say that like with folk horror, that, that kind of implies either something paganistic or nostalgic for a time long, long ago or something not a part of current society. So, like, Midsummer is a good example of this. It's uh, where people are leaving society and going to a completely foreign country where they're the only ones that speak the language, and it's a completely different culture, completely different setting, and they're just kind of there as outsiders that are getting sucked farther and farther in. We've also seen The Witch very recently, and also within these sort of, like, underground underground strange i'm gonna call it the uh creepypasta world slash the podcast world there has been a massive rise in stories that you will find that are centered around either fey or native american folklore and all of them essentially just kind of boil down to stay out of the woods stay out of the woods don't go in the woods There's things in the woods, and they are either going to steal your children and come back, or they are going to wear your skin, call out your name, and bring in your other people. Oh, gee, I wasn't planning on sleeping tonight. It's fine. You live in California. There's no woods near you. There's God-forsaken nothing around you. I I live right in the foothills of the mountains right now. Oh. Well, (laughs) stay out of the mountains, Matt. I'm trying to think, because some, some of the examples are coming from different places so like the witch is also an intersection of religious horror it's a family trying to cling on to their faith as evil forces attack them is one of the subtexts of that movie so you you have a lot of um i guess we could call elevated horror pieces and by elevated horror we really mean just artistically presented and very very thematically strong pieces of horror um, so, like, any of the Ari Aster films or anything by Robert Eggers or, like, the A24, basically. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of them kind of tell stories that are a little bit off the beaten path. But I think the appeal of folk horror is that, especially as our society becomes more and more and more urbanized, the horror is always kind of like a fear of something, of the other, of the unknown, of... A critique on our dependence on something um so like the terminator movies were fear of computers and then a critique of our depend of our growing dependence on them so i think with folk horror is that it's um a fear of leaving society the idea that if we had to return kind of to the wild that we would not be able to do it the idea that that kind well that's kind of dreadful actually the idea that we're so dependent on the society around us that we would have just no mastery of literally anything that we used to be very in tune with yeah it's like a loss of control i personally really like that and that kind of goes into where my thesis with this as well is is the idea that like a lot of folk horror the running theme is sometimes that it's someone from outside of the woods going into the woods and then discovering something or something from 
the woods comes back out. And what we really see here is that it's always connections to really old ideas. That it's something that we used to have a mastery over, or at least an understanding. There's With Faye, there's a really common trope of we used to be connected with them, we used to have ways in which we would worship them, or at least appease them so that they wouldn't be angry. But now that we have been gone away so long, the Fae are vengeful and vindictive against us. So this is where you start seeing a lot of running themes of specifically, um, at least with Fae stories, it's almost always related to child kidnapping or uh, your child comes back, but it's not actually your child. It's a bunch of bugs inside your child or it's the Fae pretending to be your child, Um, which horrifying, horrifying, but also very good and indicative of that idea. And we also, for me personally, I kind of wonder if there is sort of a question of also a longing for us to get connected with that side of us, or if it's cautionary. Should we perhaps start becoming more connected with nature and start moving away from the frankly, very um, not safe societies that we've built for ourselves. This is because I feel like that's kind of where it's leaning, honestly. Like, if we don't feel safe within this, within our own, uh, within our own home, should we start potentially figuring out how to bring back our connectivity with the Earth as before it's too late, essentially. Which also um, kind of goes into a theme mm. of, like, the climate crisis. I'd say it almost depends on the on the uh, project. That is very in true. In a lot of ways. Um, so, like, the ritual is a good, actually a good example of folklore. I can't believe I didn't mention that earlier. Is that it's, it's about a group of friends who go hiking in a foreign country, and then things go wrong. But the thing is, they leave their home... And they're in this completely foreign environment where none of them have ever been before. And then they start encountering supernatural, creepy things. Um, and so that that's kind of like one of the thematic fears is the uh, powerlessness of their situation. Um, actually, it's funny that we're even going in this direction. I didn't think I'd talk about this movie, but The Descent, um, it plays with a similar idea. I'm, I'm going to be talking about The Descent in a future video. Um, so if you like my long-ass video analyses, I'm going to be doing another one. Um, um, but the idea of, like, I don't know, because some of these things are almost promoting a healthy fear, like a fear of God-type yeah. relationship with nature, as opposed to just, like, uh, just it coexisting with nature. I can't think of too many movies that do this, but I can think of at least a number of stories that I have read or listened to over the past couple years that have heavily featured the idea of someone develop. Uh, well, actually, every trope that you have that someone is developing over an Indian burial ground and then ghosts start haunting, or the Fae, or the spirits that would reside there or had resided in the woods then seeking something horrible upon the town. Those are all active uh, options for what could go wrong here. And I feel like that's kind of answering the question of, like, where this anxiety is coming from at the very least. And a very good argument for why it's manifesting. I'd also say that anything related to the Indian burial ground stuff usually comes from angry specters of a traumatic and violent past as well. So, like... I don't remember for the life of me if the book version of Stephen King's Shining mentions this or not, but I know in the movie, in Kubrick's adaptation, they mentioned that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground and that they had to fight off Native American attacks multiple times while they were building the property. And the whole idea was that it's, at least with Kubrick's movie thematically, is the whole one of the ideas is just like cycles of violence. Yeah. And uh, how tr- that trauma gets passed from one generation to the next. And yeah. And so I wonder if any of it, a little bit's like the past coming back to haunt you in a little, little bit. I mean, folk horror is kind of timeless, in my opinion. Like, the, so The Shining is definitely not folk horror. However, there are some of the tropes that are at least used within folk horror that we just mentioned. 
So I do think that, again, like any genre, you can sort of put any thematic element that you want into it and get results relying that they aren't too out of uh, out of class, essentially, for what that genre could do. So, like, with folk horror, I can't think of anything that wouldn't necessarily work that you could put thematically in, but, like, slashers are notorious for being really hard to do thematic work with because of how sort of, like, one beat they are with their type of horror. Or, specifically, uh, like, even the 2000s like sort of a gore porn that was going on back then post 9-11 with our exposure to just extreme violence all the time thematically that media always had some problems that i think saw is one of the only things that like even kind of got close to being a thematic work with it well and then like with, with the with slashers the thematic implications of slashers are often really really heavily dependent on the location so like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're in the middle of nowhere, and the original one's kind of like the satire of the stereotypical 60s or 50s nuclear family. Um, Black Christmas, another early slasher, that one's kind of like, the whole idea is that um, these girls are getting murdered one by one, but nobody's taking them seriously because uh, all the men in that movie suck. Yes. Um, in yeah. Halloween, it's... Uh, quiet suburbia versus the personification of evil basically um, and, and and so like but it's it, but a lot of these fears are personified in very very similar ways at the end of the day yeah um with folk horror with uh, monsters uh less than human monsters you you have the chance to kind of symbolize other things and i um, it, it's a well, it is inherently almost a nature personified with whatever monster that exists. Because I, the running thing within both Native American folk horror and um, Germanic folk horror is that they have always been there. They are a part of the greater world, and we know nothing about them. We only know how to avoid them. And it's best to keep the old ways in order to do so. Which... The not knowing, in my opinion, kind of brings us to our second big point today. So number two on what could potentially be the next big fad in horror. I got to go with cosmic horror on this one. This is um, I don't think it's any secret to anyone that cosmic horror is my favorite genre, but it's also not a secret to most people that there has been a rising attention to cosmic horror in and of itself and a rising conversation around it. Um, we have seen pieces of HDP Lovecraft getting adapted into film very recently. The Color Out of Space is a phenomenal film for anyone who hasn't seen it yet that very much plays into most of the themes that HP Lovecraft used often. Um, we're currently in the middle of it covering Housing Complex C, which is just a straight-up Cthulhu Mythos anime. Which, I don't think... I did some research on it, and I'm pretty sure it is the first of its kind. And when things start getting adapted into new sections for the first time, and also when things start exiting the public domain and people start experimenting with them, which is what is happening with H.P. Lovecraft right now, we start seeing a lot more media i mean yeah look at what happened the second dracula left public domain or entered pub public domain um now the interesting thing to me about cosmic horror is that there's really only one name that's kind of associated with th with that entire uh subgenre and that's lovecraft so it's to the point where lovecraft basically is the genre name so, okay, I, I do have a bone to pick with this, actually. So uh, there is a difference between cosmic horror and Lovecraftian. Um, and there are plenty of other writers that existed, and the reason why H.P. Lovecraft has such a big pile on this is because what H.P. Lovecraft did is he essentially was working within a form of Creative Commons before Creative Commons had a proper name. What he would do is he would write these characters, Cthulhu, Nihilarthotep, Azathoth, everything that appears in his original works. And he would also encourage other writers to use 
these entities as creatively as they wanted to. And and so they also he also kind of traded entities with other people. So the King in Yellow is not H.P. Lovecraft. Um, that is... Ooh. I want to say it's Robert W. Chambers. It just left me. I want to say it's Robert W. Chambers. Um, so the fact check. But that's... He was one of the people that at least had written along with H.P. Lovecraft um, and had kind of contributed to what we now call the Cthulhu Mythos. So, ah, you got it right. Robert Chambers, 1895. Nice. Um, so with that, the, uh, the big thing here is that cosmic horror in and of itself as a genre is more about the fear of the unknown, the great unknown and the how inf- infinitely small we are. Now, what H- what Lovecraftian is, is an expansion on that and a take on it. What Lovecraftian is, is specifically not just the, um, not just the fact that it's cosmic and spooky, but he also had fantasy elements that were still Lovecraftian. And the way that he would do this in the common theme is that the truth of the universe, or how we actually exist, is so bafflingly complex that to even understand it would drive you mad. This is not a theme that you see in Alien. This is not a theme that you... I believe this is not a theme that you see within... Um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the cosmic horror bit where they go find a spaceship that has come... Event Horizon. This is not a theme in Event Horizon. So, with that sort of knowledge, you start interacting with a really weird thing which is the reason why Lovecraft is so hard to adapt which is people kind of boil it down to the descriptions that he gave and at the time the descriptions that Lovecraft would give of like ah Cthulhu is a squid dragon man thing elephant thing um that's a really bad way that's not how he would actually describe it in the book by the way he's much scarier than that and I am improvising um but what ended up happening is at the time that he was writing this, no one really knew what a squid looked like. You knew you would hear writing of it, but there weren't a lot of pictures of what a giant squid looked like. There maybe would be some calamari that you could maybe find or find a picture of, but even that was like this weird thing that no one really completely understood what it was. No one had a solid idea of like tentacles and octopied and it was this thing where back then your brain would fit, fill it in in your imagination it would be infinitely more terrifying and so have i have a, a question then yes so would cthulhu then be an expansion of like old school like way way ancient um like kraken myths from antiquity Yes and no. So Cthulhu has more going on because Cthulhu embodies the madness that we cannot understand. The idea with the Call of Cthulhu is that he starts reaching out to you, to people that have an infin- have an affinity for him in their dreams and starts sort of giving them sort of flashes of like what's going on, how Relay is going to rise and he will rise with it, what they need to do to help him. And they start like making these acts of art usually that embody this and the acts of art that are just so unfathomably hard to understand that other people just do not do not get what's going on or even go mad looking at them and those artists themselves start going mad because they start understanding the greater context of the world so anytime someone knows what act what's actually going on they go insane or go damn near close to insane so there's Cthulhu has that piece of him, sure, of, like, he's extension of, like, Kraken myth, but he's also that additional element of even coming into contact with him, even in the smallest way, is going to completely render you insane. And to to jump off of that point really quick, it's it's also something to note that, like, that's something that we're seeing now today. Like, the, the telescopes that have just taken, like, pictures like the most recent pictures of the universe where we're seeing them in greater detail that there are infinite galaxies that have infinite planets that have infinite suns that could have infinite life on them that's it it, this idea that nature is so much more than we could ever imagine is is still alive today there's so many questions about the universe that we don't even know so this actually brings up the point um and the reason why cthulhu is a nautical monster um 
we have given up since on exploring the oceans, even though the oceans are um, still not explored and we still have no idea what the fuck's going on down there. There was such anxiety about this in the 1920s and 100 years and like 100 plus years ago that people were just straight up afraid of the ocean. The fear, like the sort of cosmic fear that we have or like the great unknowing that we think of out there also applied to everything below the water back in the day. Hence, Cthulhu is a fish. And then uh, the presence of uh, cryptids like the Deep Ones, then. Yes, um, and the Deep Ones are a... Lovecraft... So, I will say, the other reason why Lovecraftian is Lovecraftian is because also on the extent of cosmic horror, he was extremely racist and xenophobic. Um, we all know stories of things that I will not name on the podcast, but he is very bad, very xenophobic, and Deep Ones and Nihilarthotep are both a reflection of this. Um, Deep Ones are used as a form of sexual horror, as well as a xenophobic horror. Uh, In particular, the the fear with Deep Ones, which are the fish people that um, people start breeding with, and then they become the fish people. Um, And the same actually applies to ghouls, is the idea that uh, the immigrants will come and start fucking people and then assimilate into our society and then we will become more, we will become less white is essentially what was going on with H.P. Lovecraft. Um, Which, like, if you're going to write with Deep Ones in a modern sense, you have to make it a commentary on that. Otherwise, it does not read very well. Um, And then uh, Nihilarthotep, who is the great trickster god, is the ultimate form of xenophobia because he is this great being from outside of all of us that only wants to cause us harm. And he's, like, the only thing, like, close to a true evil god. Uh, I know a little too much about Lovecraft, so I could go on for days about this, but, like, (laughs) where these fears are kind of coming from, I do think that there is an extent of the fact that he is... A lot of his works have now just entered public domain, including the latter ones, so they are able to be adapted, finally. Um, as well as some other things within the Cthulhu mythos, because the Cthulhu mythos, like, continued to be written in for, like, a solid 30 or 40 years after his death. Sorry. Even in the last, like, 10 to 15 years, I'd say that, while not being a horror project, True Detective's first season had a lot of... Part of, uh, the insanity of the people that they were hunting in that season. Have, have you seen that? Yes, the first season, True Detective, yes. Yeah, so they're, they're hunting, basically... A, a, a weird freaky cult conspiracy thing that you never like even at the end you don't understand how deep it is how big it goes and if what they believe in is real or not um but they keep making references to like carcosa king and yellow things like that and the imagery a lot of the associated imagery you see within that genre are present in that project yeah and um i will say the way that it's used in the king of yellow is inherently lovecraftian it's not cosmic but it is lovecraftian it is something unknowable that even our characters are scared of finding out what's going on and from a modern day sense i think abraham you had it put very very well that the fact is is that on top of everything we're starting to ask a lot of really existential questions Um, This is also, I think, a little bit associated with the fact that uh, we are currently living in, even though no one's naming it, uh, the Doomsday Clock is very high up right now. So the last time that Cosmic Horror was really popular with people making it was the 1980s, when we were at the height of the Cold War. So with the 80s, the biggest, the most famous example of cosmic horror that I can give would be the Alien franchise, of which really only the first one is, maybe the third one count as horror. But even the rest of them, like uh, like Prometheus, um, tried to do this. I hated Prometheus, but I still think it's worth mentioning that um, you're trying to get all these answers that you can't know, and the things you do find when you're out there will kill you. So, John Carpenter's uh, The Thing, which, and also The Thing got a remake in, like, actually recently, but I think it was really It was really a prequel, bad. actually. Oh, it was a prequel? Oh, okay. Mm. Um, I haven't seen that. However, The Thing was also, I believe John Carpenter's The Thing was also in the 80s, if I'm 
but I might be wrong about that. Maybe so. 82. 82. There we go. Um, John Carpenter's The Thing is very... It's not Lovecraftian. It is cosmic, though. Um, it is the idea of something from outer space coming in and fucking shit up, and we have no idea how far it goes, how it works. We have no idea who's suddenly changed. And this can be extended to the idea of, like, the invasion of the body snatchers. If you want to go really, really old school, you can bring up the blob, which for my old school horror people will remember that movie and think it's silly now, but, like, it, it was a genuinely terrifying old school movie. So with Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it might be, Invasion of the Body Snatchers might be one of my favorite examples of cosmic horror, um, just because it's such a reflection of the Cold War and just the fears around it. So there were actually two adaptations, there's actually multiple adaptations of that movie, but the first one came in the 50s, um, right at the height of uh, the second Red Scare, and then the second, and then the third one came in, or the second one came in 1978 or 70, it's not in my notes, 78 or 79, very, very late 70s. So right as the Cold War was hitting its final apex. Yeah, and then um, I mean, this is something that we've seen time and time again. There, I will say the big issue that cosmic horror faces um, when people are adapting it is when. There and I think that this is extremely true of Prometheus, is that cosmic horror in and of itself is so existential that everything needs to be shrouded in mystery. You cannot, as an audience member, understand a single thing that's going on in order for it to be scary. You have to be constantly in the dark. You have to be constantly paranoid, and that's the reason why cosmic horror like can get really, really under your skin. Um, what ends up happening in Prometheus? is totally guilty of this is when you start demystifying it that's when it starts having problems and that's also the reason why cosmic horror has been so hard to adapt uh because when you are reading written word or listening to audio your brain is going to fill in the details when you are seeing something visually your those details will be presented to you in a way that are now being filled in and then with prometheus especially when you start explaining the origin of the scary cosmic thing, the scary cosmic thing becomes significantly less scary. Um, and this has actually happened with H.P. Lovecraft's work with the Cthulhu Mythos sometime after his death. I'm forgetting the name of the publisher, but they um, published essentially an entire family tree of Greek pantheon of the Cthulhu Mythos. Um, now, H.P. Lovecraft like added to this really briefly at, while he was alive as a joke, but it was never supposed to be this whole family tree. Um, and then there was also the introduction of the idea of good versus evil within the Cthulhu mythos, which a lot of people really, really disliked because it demystified it even more. Um, so when you start taking those in, it starts becoming more fantasy or action related with just squids. Um, versus being completely unknowable, which is what was scary. And I think the other thing with, um, well, Prometheus had a lot of other problems beyond that, too, admittedly. Um, but the, yeah, no, the whole idea, like, Alien, good example. Um, there's, there's a couple different things going on. You have the kind of capitalistic commentary going on in that all the people being killed in that movie are, like, blue-collar truckers, basically, um, who get kind of get intentionally thrown under the gun spoilers for a 40 year old movie who get thrown under the gun um from their corporate overlords just to see what would happen um but the other thing is that they have nobody's ever seen a creature like this before ever therefore you don't know how it works you don't know how it thinks if it thinks you don't know what it's in, if it's intelligent or if it's just an eating machine and you you certainly don't know how to kill it. which is Honestly, the thing about that movie that works really well, and this is the um, th this is the reason why cosmic horror is one of the most difficult genres to write and produce. Um, that plot hinges on our main character figuring those things out in order to actually fight it. Um, and we do get some answers to some of your questions. We know that it is kind of an eating machine, but it's also very intelligent. Like, when we get an answer, it's always the bad answer. Um, yeah. 
but she starts figuring out ways to outsmart it based off of what its motives are, and that's how ultimately the movie ends the way that it does. Um, which also is very true of how uh, a lot of H.P. Lovecraft's really famous works work. Um, so a really good piece of this is the Dunwich Horror, which uh, in which Henry Artemidge, like one of the main reoccurring characters within the Cthulhu mythos, is essentially having his first experience with the mythos, and he has to figure out what the monster is, how it works, and what it's doing, and how to get rid of it. And H.P. Lovecraft does this in kind of a cop-out way for him, where he reads the Necronomicon. By the way, the Necronomicon is from H.P. Lovecraft. Almost goes insane because he read the Necronomicon, but now, but then comes back with the information to deal with the situation. Like, him and three friends, I think, take a crack at trying to read that book, and he's the only one to come out being like, I think I have something useful. It's a little bit of a cop-out in a Lovecraftian way to kind of show but he had to kind of stay true to his themes that even understanding how to kill this thing is going to cost a piece of your mind. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if Lovecraftian itself will come back, um, but definitely cosmic horror in and of itself is rearing its head around. And whenever cosmic horror is being emulated, people will be looking to HP Lovecraft and we well, like cosmic uh, Lovecraft side of it is really really hard to just show on screen a lot of times it translates so much better on page because it's the whole idea of uh something you can't see and can't quite grasp and that's like the one downside of movies is that eventually you do have to show your hand a little bit um like even with um even with jaws you have to show the shark at the end um with uh Again, with the movie that I'm talking about, The Descent, you don't see the monsters that are hunting them for the first hour of the movie. And a lot of people, myself included, think the first half of that movie is much better than the second half. Uh, Once you understand the threat that you're dealing with, I guess, a little bit. Um, It's the the unknown that really drives all of cosmic horror, I think. And it's really interesting because the last decade has been filled with projects that have... Like True Detective, either borrowed items from Cosmic Horror or have just done straight up adaptations of it. So, like, I'd say Stranger Things is actually a good example of this. Yeah. Because, uh, like, the farther you get into the Stranger Things mythos, the weirder it gets. But at the same time, uh, I, Stranger Things, and this is the reason why Cosmic Horror is so damn hard. Stranger Things is somewhere between horror and action. Because once yeah. you start seeing the monsters and you ha- and the characters have to combat it, it leans away from it. And I think that's fine um, if that is the media that you're going for. But going for straight horror is so damn difficult. I think the only examples that I've seen that have done it really well have been Mandy and The Color Out of Space. Both of which are phenomenal Nicolas Cage movies. Um, Mandy is a lot more Lovecraftian in the fact that we know that something bigger is going on in the background, but it's dealing with a cult. Um, and you only see kind of glimpses of that bigger thing. And then, um, the color out of space is just a straight up HP Lovecraft story that they were able to adapt really, really well in a way that was terrifying and unsettling and extremely psychological. There's another piece you're forgetting about, uh, the lighthouse. The Lighthouse. Uh, there's only... I mean, the cosmic horror things in there... First of all, extremely Lovecraftian. Uh, that's... It goes... It's brain. It's going into the loss of sanity. Um, we never... Our narrators are so unreliable throughout it that I genuinely do not know what was going on in that film. Um, I don't think the director does either. <laughs> I love that movie, but I don't think Edgar knows the answers that to the questions he poses in that film. And I will say, the credit that I will give Lovecraft is he knew all of those things that were going on in the background. And I do think that a good horror writer and horror director needs to know the larger questions of the mythos, which is the reason why I don't hate the uh, Pantheon idea for the mythos. I just hate the fact that we all know it now. I would... Like, that's such a useful tool for everyone that wants to write in the Cthulhu mythos, is knowing what the Pantheon looks like. Because now you have a sort of built-in way to sort of, like, see what weird little connections you can string across gods. And kind of hinting at a larger picture 
that could be terrifying. Um, but when you start drawing the Pantheon itself uh, directly, that's when shit gets um, kind of kind of weird and less scary. I will say, as far as the most modern approach of all of this, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to our number one spot of the weirdest horror genre that I think we're gonna start seeing. So we had a brief conversation about this beforehand because we're we know that there is this and it's just barely taking shape right now. So we're going to dub it dystopic horror. And that is horror that is in particular thriving from a dystopia or kind of fear of other people and institutions. Um, now, a couple spots that we know that this has kind of appeared so far is, uh, first of all, within the Purge movies. The Purge movies are probably the basic, biggest example of this that I can see. Hi, Ben from Post here. The other really big example that everyone in the room forgot about when we were making this was Black Mirror. Black Mirror is probably the actual biggest version of this and is a really important framing device for the rest of this conversation that we just left out. Are they saying something about society as well? And the main fear that comes from them is the fact that you cannot trust your neighbor. Also, yes. And then at the same time, this is more in the thriller world, but we have just recently gone through Squid Game, which had some major horror elements. The fact that you couldn't trust anyone on screen, but... I think we're going to start seeing this a lot more within horror itself. You could also potentially argue that Get Out goes down, would have gone down this route if it kept its original ending. Um, but the fact that the ending was changed does somewhat disqualify it from being within this group. With your definition of dystopian horror, would like apocalyptic scenarios, so like Bird Box or A Quiet Place, would they be counted in this as well? Um... I would say, I would say yes, actually. So, but, um, actually well, it's more of a yes and no. Interesting thing about a uh, bird box is that bird box is actually like a combined, uh, a double feature in terms of the genre, because one is obviously like the downfall of society, but two, it, if you look at the thing, you die. And I think that's meant to symbolize the Lovecraftian element where it's like, even looking at this thing takes away yourself takes away your being yourself you know you could argue your sanity but you know they change it to your life so i think it's i think it is supposed to be a lovecraftian entity or a lovecraftian problem that they're all facing so take with that what you will it's also yeah. the greatest astroturfing campaign we've ever seen <laughs> i would argue that um anything in which the horror is derived from people in power yeah, really kind of abusing it from that point forward kind of fits into this genre. So, like, there's a... The issue with this is, like, all the things that I want to bring up are stories that I have either read or listened to, and I consume... Um, anyone that's looking for horror podcast, uh, I highly recommend the No Sleep podcast because you can just get a bunch of really, really good short horror stories in an hour or two-hour episode, and it's phenomenal. Um, but a lot of examples that I'm thinking of involve just someone investigating something the main antagonist then whether or not it's a supernatural force or a or just society collapsing in and on itself is being furthered by corporate interests that are actively part of the story that are actively pursuing so i would say quiet place and bird box because they're both apocalyptic yes it plays into it but I wouldn't say that it is genre-specific. Like, in order for it to be a genre, it has to be so ingrained within what's happening in the story and the active action that you cannot look away from it. So then with dystopian, you could even trace it back to the YA dystopian craze of the late 2000s then. Um, so anything Hunger Games-ish, I guess. Yeah, and I... There have been horror interpretations of the Hunger Games, uh, at least back in the day, that I don't think did very well. Mostly because even though the dystopian uh, stories were a big deal back then, that was more of a fan that was a power fantasy for teenagers. The idea was 
ah, oh, we're going to be so great because we're going to deal with the dystopian societies when we come and look at what we can do, which is also the reason why uh, Gen Z as a whole calls shit out all the time and is willing to do a bunch of crazy shit against the government. Um, but now we're kind of actually getting to the point where it's like, ooh, the United States is probably going to collapse. Ah, Russia's happening. Oh, look at what's happening in China. And dystopian pieces are coming more to the forefront. Um, you could argue... So basically we're in the 1980s again. Yeah, and actually you could argue that 1984, because I, I don't know who has read this book recently, 1984 is extremely unsettling. Would I label it as horror? No. If he wanted to, could it have easily been? Absolutely. If you were to take 1984 and then add a change the setting so that he would essentially be seeing people getting tortured regularly and have a very direct piece to it. Actually, you know what? Subtract 1984. Fahrenheit 451 as a book. The amount of times that you get descriptions of people burning alive. How that is absolutely horrifying. Now, again, I think that this is a genre that if it comes around into horror will be new. I don't think that it is completely fleshed out yet. However, we are seeing a lot of stories now reflecting the active situation that we're all in. See, the funny thing with 1984 is that it's kind of in between genres in a lot of ways. It kind of gets held up as almost a sci-fi book, but it's really not. Like, there's there's no technology in there that we see that is part of speculative fiction or anything like that. Um, with the exception of maybe like hollow projectors, because that book was written in the 40s, and we're talking about you know people talking to you from a TV screen. But that's that's been an idea. That's been a very old idea in science uh, fiction, even before it became reality. Yeah. Um, and and so 1984, it's like a lot. The interesting thing about that book, and this is a total side tangent, is that people get different things out of that book. So some people will read it and they'll see the the, the one thing they'll take away is Big Brother's watching. Or some people will read it and they'll see historical revisionism and the manipulation of historical facts. And some people will see it, and um, George Orwell has a fantastic essay about this where he's talking about the dumbing down of the English language so that you intellectually limit people's ability to think. And I, here's the thing. Every single one of those elements that you talked about is still it, it, still in that book. And I will say uh, my favorite, like, uh, Rorschach test involving that book is, like, whether someone thinks it's anti-communist or anti-capitalist. And it's it, it's technically just anti-authoritarianism uh, because they make it very clear that in that book that there is a version of this in every country. I think there, in that book there's three countries that all operate within the same way that are all this dystopian nightmare but one is probably communist another is probably um another is probably capitalist and a third is somewhere in between well you, you I, have to re- you have to remember that when that book came out one of the countries was standing for russia another was a chi- standing for china and the other was a standing for uk and us yeah um so a lot of it just kind of comes from lingering sentiments out of World War II is yeah. a lot of the political thought going into that and why some of the anti-authoritarianism, especially when they had just dealt with fascist leaders in Spain, Italy, Germany, uh, France even, and, and uh, communist leaders in places like Russia. Which I think is the reason why we're going to see this as a genre rising again is because we're kind of in the middle of that again. We're... I don't think I really need to, like, bring up everything that's been happening in Ukraine with Putin or for people that are not aware of the just straight up genocide of the Uyghur Muslims in China. So, like, we're as well as everything with China sort of like bringing back territories that like Hong Kong, for example, that were independent and are very much losing that over time. Well, even more closer to home, we we had the um, we had the pandemic, yeah. And so this kind of plays into like all three horror genres: one is a return in nature, another is a complete 
collapse of society, and then the other is having no knowledge or control of your situation, essentially. It's something giant unknown that you can't see, you can't touch. Um, and then and then you, you, you add to the fact in that certain people were locked in their houses for weeks or months at a time, and then just the uh, general unrest that follows that. Yeah. I would quickly like to push back on something that was said a little bit earlier um, about about Get Out, but also the nature of dystopian horror. Uh, and also uh, 1984 as another example that you cited. I actually think that both of those examples are are very clear dystopian horror, but I only think that because dystopian horror, unlike the other genres that were talked about, can exist as a subgenre and mm. still be very prevalent. So in the case of 1984, although there is like a sense of like mystery and like I guess would you call it sci-fi? Sci-fi is definitely prominent within it. However, the book itself is presenting itself as a mystery. There you go. So so even with that, because of the very nature of the world that it exists in, it's so pervasive that to remove it and to to say that it is a dystopian horror, I feel like isn't really giving credit to the very horrifying things that are happening or that just just the landscape of the world like the fact that there is so much censorship the fact that you know love is being policed and you know even an earlier like the earliest example of dystopian horror at least that i would classify i would classify even night of the living dead yes i mean because even though that horror film does not really explicitly talk about race the fact that the main character is a black man and the fact that the ending of the film like it, the film spoiler alert by the way the film ends and do you know how with, this movie ends i do yeah the, the the film ends with this black man not dying to zombies he survives the whole night and then he is shot dead by police officers even yep. though this was originally intended for a white male lead the fact that it is played by a black man instantly changes all of the underlying underlying messages that the film is putting forth Therefore, I could see that as being a dystopian film at the end of the day. So, Miley, so I completely agree with that example. With Get Out, the only reason why it came really, really close to being explicitly this genre instead of just elevated is because they removed the original ending in which he went to jail. And I, I think even in even in uh, even in that even if in the original ending, the fact that. The, the they created this system the, the fact that they were you know thinking about the institutions that already existed and the advantages that black people like supposedly had and that was their entire motivation for bringing this person into the environment i feel like you can't really it's like it, i retract my point it's like as long i feel like no matter what as long as there is like a powerlessness not from this big entity but from a very small very defined controllable and seemingly defeatable entity because yeah. in the all the examples that were shared they all seem like very concrete systems that could be destroyed and yet they're all so big that they get the best of our protagonists or you know the world yeah because the idea with it is that while there may be some other horrific thing that is present and unnerving, it is ultimately the character themselves fighting against a system that cannot be dismantled. Yeah. And in its own sort of, like, if we're going back into the cosmic horror way, what is more unfathomably large to the average person than the cogs of the machine that is the government and capitalism or runaway communism or anything that we just discussed because those are all things that we're like ah if i end up on the wrong side of that there's just no going back my life is completely over and ruined and when we start seeing society going in a direction where the common man and woman and non-binary folk are going to be up against the system indefinitely probably then we have a lot to fear so I think on that, we are going to jump to just a final fun thing. Um, I want to see what everyone's favorite horror piece of media is real quick. So, Matt, why don't we start off with you first? My favorite horror piece of media? Yeah, absolutely, sir. 
Um, or one that you would recommend. So, a uh, new horror film that I would actually recommend to a lot of people. Um, it, it's a film called You Won't Be Alone. It's Macedonian folk horror movie about a girl who turns into a witch. Um, there's some very, very interesting visuals in that. It's kind of like horror by way of Terrence Malick. And I saw it, I think, on Amazon Prime. I don't know where it is now. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good time, but it's a very cerebral and very, very low dialogue. Not everybody's going to like it, but I really enjoyed it. All right. Abraham, do you have one to uh, throw out to the winds? Uh, yes, I have a show recommendation. It's one that I recommend to everyone that I can, you know, meet. It is a show called Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. If you do not know what this is, it is a it's existential horror based around puppetry in the style of Sesame Street. They actually just got a television show. Six episodes just premiered. It's all online. It's all free. It is hilarious, terrifying, and just a very just very well made. Wait, 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 wait. They, they actually got like a whole. They got a television show. Like recently. Yes. Like half, we're not talking about the original. No, no, no. I, I, I'm talking about a half new, hour slots. Half hour slots. And it's, it's, it, unlike the old YouTube videos that they used to do, these episodes are, are, are more drawn out. And there's actually a little bit of comedy too to help alleviate the tension, but it's still pervasive all the way through. There's blood, there's gore, so be careful. Uh, definitely check it out. <laughs> I Fuck. hate you for reminding me that that it existed. The thing that tr- uh, well, how old were we when that first came out? It it came out in like 2012. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah I was in no, high school. We, yeah, we were we were old enough at that point for it to not be like we clicked on the wrong video and as a small child and were traumatized because that's what actually happened to a lot of very young people. Um, that's I, I'm pretty sure. Don't hug me. I'm scared. Is one of the things that's responsible for the made for kids uh, section of YouTube. In all honesty. <laughs> yeah, probably. Because those thumbnails, they look like they're clickable for children, and they're not. Um, Alright, so on uh, mine's... Uh, mine is... I, I'm going to stick with my recommendation, uh, just because it's very good, and I... There are some rumors that it is currently uh, coming back, at least for a Halloween special this month. Um, I'm going to have to give it to my all-time favorite podcast, The Magnus Archives. Um... This is phenomenal. Uh, it is cosmic horror. I should put that out. It is not, however, Lovecraftian. It, it does not play with the Lovecraftian themes. However, it completely embraces the idea of something that is far out there that we do not completely understand and the ways that it sort of picks itself into the world. The idea, the base idea of it for the world is that there is all of the fears that we have as a society are personified by what are best classified as a different entity, but could also be one big thing we do not know. So there is like a specific entity that is your fe- the fear of disease, and like one of its um one of its avatars is a woman that is full of bugs. Which, I will say, very good stuff. There's also a fear of being buried alive, in which, at one point, someone goes into a coffin that has an infinite set of stairs downward, and when they go in, they cannot get back out. It's phenomenal. It presents itself as short horror anthology, um, but as a whole... It is just an incredible listen, and I would highly recommend to anyone that is interested in cosmic horror, wants a take on it that's not Lovecraft, and also it has a phenomenal ending, that, and that is something that I cannot say for a lot of horror podcasts. I am mostly looking at uh, I'm mostly looking at the black tapes when I'm talking about definitive endings because anyone that remembers that remembers that it was probably the worst ending that they have ever experienced in their life. Um, well, now I'm but, curious. The black tape uh, with about which one? Because the black tapes, I'm going to tell you to just not listen to. <laughs> How does it end? Oh, um, so, okay, the black tapes, let me paint a picture for you. The entire time we're following a mystery that is around this, uh, essentially an NPR reporter, and this person that is, his entire 
existence is to um, essentially disprove that ghosts exist. He will, he's, it, it is kind of like an X-Files vibe with the dynamic. However, as it goes on, they get really entrenched within this deep sort of religious horror mystery and trying to figure out what's going on. The end of the world is approaching. They're the secret of it, and they're now at the center of it, and they're wanted by the bad guys. And instead of, there's a cat at my door that's trying to get in. Um, and instead of facing the bad guys and dealing with the threat once and for all, what they do is they decide, I love you, let's run away together, and then the podcast ends. What? Yes. There's all this buildup, all this mystery. We finally solve what's going on. We have a definitive way for them to like, oh, there's these people that need to be dealt with in order for this bad thing to never happen. But also they could just run away and deal with it that way. So then they decide to run away. And then the podcast just ends. Oof. I, I, I exposed Abraham to this podcast back in 2017. And now I just figured out how it ends. Having flashbacks. And, and now I'm never going to finish it. And now I hate it forever. <laughs> so on that note, uh, thank you all so much for uh, tuning in on the podcast if you have tuned in. Otherwise, this has hopefully been a very fun listen for you. We have other content coming up within the horror world for this month. And uh, hey, it's the return of the movie. Hi, if you liked that, you know what would really, really help us? If you left a review or left a comment. Honestly, reviews, if you're on the podcasting apps, we're on all podcasting apps, by the way. And then subscribing on YouTube channel would be a big help. We're actually really close to monetization. You know what? No, 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 no. You're going to subscribe. You're going to leave that comment. This is a threat. Goodbye.